Oh my. Doesn't matter what I feel, doesn't matter what I see. But man, sometimes what I feel is that God is a million miles away and what I see is disaster in my life. How do we do with that? Man, if that's not a work of the Holy Spirit to, to help us live out the truth of those words. Good morning, Applewood family. And those who are guests this morning, we're glad you're here. Thanks for worshiping with us. You know, I have categories of stories. My favorite, of course, being the truth is stranger than fiction. This story is not from that category. This is more of a, wow, that's unbelievable category, not in a weird sort of a way. It's reported by the uh, UK Telegraph a few years ago. These guys were flat, broke, and homeless. Brothers named Geza and Zot Pilati. They lived in a cave near Budapest for many years. They were known by others as the Cavemen Brothers. These guys would go out during the days to scrape together whatever money they could by selling scrap metal candy sometimes, if they could find that. Theirs was a hopeless situation. But then everything changed. One day, out of the blue, charity workers from certain foundation in the UK found the brothers in their cave and informed these guys that they had inherited a substantial portion of their late maternal grandmother's fortune. Grandma was worth seven billion with a B, dollars. Just like that, these two guys, if they wanted to, they could call a castle their home when all they had ever known for years was a cave. I don't know how that story played out. They didn't tell me what happened after that. I mean, they obviously, we can imagine... I wonder how long it took them to get wherever they needed to go to sign those papers. And can't you just see them desperately looking for, you know, identification, open accounts, access some of that fortune? Think about it. I have no idea how much they received because the story just said was a substantial portion, but 10%, a meager 10% of $7 billion is $70 million. Could you live on that? Might have to cut a few corners, right? Starbucks a little less, cut out a little pizza. From cave dwellers to castle dwellers. With the stroke of a pen. Unbelievable. So tell me, do you think these guys were thankful? You're hesitant. Okay. Do you, do you think... They told anyone. I don't know. I don't know, Jill. Yeah, who would they tell? They couldn't thank Grandma. She's dead. Here's what I would really like to know. Is how long did it take for them to forget their lives as cavemen? You know, when did they just 
suddenly transform everything that had to do with that past and perhaps forget where they had been. I think this story has a great salvation theme to it. Living in a dark, desperate place, no hope of anything better, when out of the blue comes an inheritance that changes their lives, giving them a future they could never have had without that. Maybe didn't even dream it. Colossians chapter 1, you know these words. God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1, thank you, Lee. (laughs) Ephesians 1, you were marked with Him, in Him, excuse me, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an inheritance that is waiting for us. Grandma was only worth seven billion. We have an inheritance that is waiting for us from the king of the universe, and why don't you look more surprised by this? And excited. We are excited. Well, inform your face. (laughs) Man. So, as we continue our summer psalms journey, we want to consider another category or type of psalm. Could anybody guess what that might be? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving psalms. As you might expect, there are many of them in the Psalter. Giving thanks to God is a... That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Giving thanks to God is a theme. Disregard these people up here in the front row. Thanksgiving to God, a theme that weaves its way into all of the Psalms, even, even in the imprecatory Psalms. We looked at one last week. Amidst the, the cursing and the crying out to God to, to bring down wrath and punishment upon enemies, there is the sense there of being thankful for his presence and his faithfulness to hear the pleas of his people. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that that thanksgiving, giving thanks, is a foundational theme that should flow from the life of any child of God. If we really believe what we say we believe, if we really believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be, thanksgiving needs to be flowing from our lives. Being a person who gives thanks often and being people together who collectively sing and express genuine thanks, I hope this is safe to say, is an indicator. It's an indicator of how much we understand the value of what we have been given. How much do we get it? Why do parents teach their children, try to teach their children, to say thank you? Why is that important? Who cares? Well, the parent cares more than the kid does, for sure. And oftentimes the parent cares more than the person who they're trying to get their kid to say thank you to. 
I mean, you've, you've been there, right? Yeah. Tell him thank you. Tell her thank you. And the kid's going, thank you. And, and, and you're sort of standing there thinking, this is no big deal. I don't really care. But as parents, we know that an expression of thanks is communicating something of our understanding of the value of a gift and the value of the one who is giving that gift. So, Romans chapter 1 is a familiar text written by Paul to the church in Rome. Just want to remind you of a few words there at the beginning of his epistle. Written to the church in Rome that, as far as we know, had not received the gospel before Paul actually had been able to visit and followed up with, with the letter. And in it, he explains the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in God's plan of redemption. But he starts it off with this, this sweeping, morbid description of humanity. Because since the fall, Paul knows that the tendency of every human heart is to reject God and his rightful place as creator who is worthy to be worshipped by those whom he has created. According to Paul, God has left humanity plenty of evidence for his existence, and yet they refuse to seek after him. They refuse to honor him. They refuse to even acknowledge him. Jim, would you stand and read that text for us from Romans chapter 1? Verses 18 to 23. Listen closely to these words. They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. Not giving thanks to God is, according to Paul in that text, one of the two main reasons given for why the wrath of God falls upon people. Now, the idea behind that word wrath that Paul is using, it's, it's not this sort of angry outburst, this petulant, irrational burst of anger, but, but it's the idea that, that there is a consequence that flows from this holy and perfect being that is just revulsed at something that is so contrary to his nature and his holy purpose. The idea is that what God reacts to is what stands against him. There's, there's a sense in the language that God moves away. He gave them over. Paul uses those words later in the text. He gave them over to a depraved mind. We could say it sort of like, and God just kind of let the chips fall where they would fall, naturally, as a result of him sort of distancing himself from the hearts of those who had rejected him. Let's think about this for a minute. Why is it important to give thanks to God? I think it's because he is God. I'm pretty sure that's what Paul's driving at here. We should give thanks to God because... Because he is God, because he is the creator, because he's the one in whom all of life finds its, its origin. All of life 
is intended to find meaning in who God is. And Paul, be clear, Paul is not suggesting that people ought to just toss out a polite, obligatory, hey, thanks, kind of a gesture, and then go on with life. To, to thank another human being for something is one thing. Rude and insulting is another. But in terms of position, you and I, as human beings, we're, we're not really owed anything. And I'd like to think that you owe me something, and you'd like to think that we owe each other. But, but on a human level, it's not like one of us is intrinsically better than the other. We think that way. Sometimes we act that way. But there's none of us that deserves better than the other. But we're not talking about us. To give thanks to God is to acknowledge Him as the source of all life, both the blessings, this is hard, and the challenges. To affirm that He is a God who is intimately involved in the lives of His people and that He always needs to be on our radar screen. Doesn't matter what I feel, doesn't matter what I see. My hope is in Him, and by the Spirit's presence in my life, I'm going to push through to be a person who gives thanks no matter what. Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Where on earth did He come up with that in pre Jesus times? That is such a powerful statement of the gracious work of God's Spirit at work in the life of an individual. I love what G.K. Chesterton says about giving thanks. He calls it grace. You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and pantomime. And grace before I open a book. Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I even dip the pen in the ink. John Piper likes to say that there is nothing that honors and exalts God more than for those whom he has created to express their thanks to him, their dependence upon him. The creature is by nature dependent upon the creator. And the psalms of thanksgiving are a wonderful reminder to us of this and and the usefulness of those psalms in, in helping to cultivate us in thankfulness on a daily basis. So our text this morning, our Thanksgiving psalm, is going to be just the first seven verses from 105. It's a long psalm. I hope you'll go back and pick up the rest of it later. There are ten specific exhortations that flow right out of the beginning. We're not even going to look at all of those. We're just going to look at maybe half of them or so. But it seems to me that... These can be a measure, if you will, of the gratitude in our lives. How, how prevalent are we in living out these exhortations that the psalmist gives us in, in 105? Are they a part of our lives on a regular basis? A part of our lives on occasion? I think they are they're expressions that come from a heart that is seeking to give thanks to God and, and, and we can find these things beginning to, 
to show up in our lives. I, I'm calling this morning's sermon Life's Bottom Line. What's really the most important thing at the heart of it all? Yeah, we can say that, that we are lovers of God. We're passionate followers of Jesus. Does thanksgiving flow from our mouths? Does it flow from our actions? Could people look at our lives and, and perhaps judge how valuable we see God on the basis of how much of our life is directed in thanks and gratitude towards Him? Whew, I hope they don't look closely at mine. This is huge. This is huge. God has revealed Himself in Scripture revealed Himself specifically through His Son. How are we responding in our lives to the beauty and the wonder of what He has revealed? So once again, we find ourselves in a place, as we have said in this series, people living in the age of grace on, on this side of the cross. And so we, we add the, the revelation that we have of the New Testament Scriptures when, when it's appropriate. And where there are abundant examples in the Old Testament for giving thanks, we add to that some of the texts that we know from the New Testament. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5, be joyful always. The bummer of that passage is that always means always. Be joyful. Joyfulness flows out of a heart that is thankful. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances. Isn't that a bummer? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. James 1, count it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. What? Really? I used to wonder if James had been smoking pot when he wrote that, but I guess it was you know, maybe a little early in, in the age of the earth. Count it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. What on earth is this about? This is about the bigness of God. This is about His presence in every detail of our lives. Henry Nowen says, to be grateful for the good things that happen in our lives is easy, but to be grateful for all of our lives, the good as well as the bad, the moments of joy as well as the moments of sorrow, the successes as well as failures, the rewards as well as the rejections, that requires hard spiritual work. Still, we are only truly grateful people when we can say thank you to all that God brings. Okay, let's stand together. Psalm 105, first seven verses. Let's read them together. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. That needed to be just a bit more enthusiastic, okay? Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done his miracles and the judgment he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, 
the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. My sisters and brothers, the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead. Be seated. All right. Rachel, can we put that last phrase up and the question? Maybe. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. The psalmist has written, we are his people, the children of Abraham, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. I want you to ask your neighbor, why is that statement important? Why is that statement important? He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Why is that statement important? See what your neighbor thinks. And if they give you a blank look, just prod them a little bit. Okay, 30 more seconds. All right. The din is dulling just a bit. What do you think? Who wants to take a stab? Craig? Yeah. And I know that about you. You're right. And we, we find ourselves scurrying back to the lament psalms and the imprecatory psalms. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, good, good, honest expression. What else? You were talking about something. What do you think? Good, good. Yeah, so true. The Hebrew concept of justice is tied into the word that, uh, that is used there. What else? Mm-hmm. Okay. Child of God. Some, there was another hand. Good, good. It's so important that, that we hear probably some, some ancient thought in this phrase because basically what we know is about ancient people groups, they all had their own gods, and so, and we see that throughout the Old Testament. The, the, the Canaanites had their gods. The Assyrians had their gods. The Babylonians had their gods. The Romans had their gods. Israel, Israel had one God. And they claimed him as our God, and yet the psalmist is telling us that his judgments are in all the earth. The ancient mind thought of their God as being contained or over, authority over their country, their territory. And so, to say that his judgments, which is his justice or his actions or his decisions, the things that he does based upon his character, they're happening all over the earth. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? This God of ours, big God. He goes beyond all of the ethnic and geographic boundaries. He is active. He is at work everywhere in his world. You remember Ruth's words to Naomi when she was, she was leaving Moab? 
And Naomi said, no, 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 go back. And Ruth said, no, I'm going. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. People thought that when they were transported to a different country, they left their God behind and took on a new God. The psalmist is reminding us that Yahweh knows no boundaries. He's present in his world. He's active everywhere. It's the idea expressed by David in Psalm 139. Where can I go? If I wanted to, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. Nowhere. That's how big Israel's God is. That's how big our God is. Geography and circumstances do not keep God from us. These exhortations are for God's people wherever they are in the world and for all circumstances because wherever they are, God is there. So let's just run through a few of these exhortations that, that flow out of the very first one. Give thanks to the Lord. This is the umbrella statement. Give thanks to the Lord. Number one exhortation under which the next nine in the immediate verses line up. The Psalms were written by God's people, for God's people, and we have said for use in worship. Now, worship carries with it the idea of living my life for someone or something that is worthy of my life. The old English word is worship. So <clears throat> what are we giving our lives to? What are we giving our energy to? Maybe more importantly, what do we give our hearts to? And so the Psalms were written for us to be, to be reminded of whose we are and, and who life is all about. As horrific as it is for humanity in general, as we saw in Romans 1, to not acknowledge God for who he is, it's unthinkable to the Hebrew mindset. It's unthinkable to the, in the scriptures that those who know him, who are his people, would not give thanks to him. That makes sense? To give thanks is to exalt God and to recognize his proper place at the center of all of life's activity. Brothers and sisters, giving thanks to God is part of our daily worship. I heard a story of, of a man who presently is, is watching someone he loves dearly go through an incredible trial. And this is a man who who, who walks with God. And as a result of watching this person whom he loves suffer so desperately, he's beginning to question his own faith. I'm suspicious that we have all found ourselves there at some point. The Psalms call us back to remember that God is in the hard stuff of life to be people who, who push through by the power and the presence of the Spirit. And it's not a lickety-split deal. 
You know, there's not three quick, easy steps. It's, it's a commitment to understanding that oh, God deserves my praise and my thanks to push through and to be people who are committed to giving Him thanks. It's foundational. It's foundational to being the people of God. We, we give thanks for everything. Exhortation number two, the psalmist says, call on His name. Call on His name. This is a great reminder of our dependence. And it leads to thanksgiving because, because we can do just that. We can call on His name. All throughout the Old Testament, the name of God represents the strength and the character of God. God is who God is. And that's why Moses was instructed to write down for the people of Israel and rehearse the command, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We tend to think of that in our more modern era of cursing. Well, certainly that's not a good idea. But what the original intent was behind that is don't live your life one way and then throw a little offering on the fire over here as if God is important. It's, it's the challenge to bring what we say we believe together with how we live our lives and, and how the love of our hearts are expressed in the life that we live. To call on His name is to say, Oh God, I need you. I need you to be for me exactly who you are. No more, no less. And thank you that you are a God who can actually do something about my life. And thank you that you are approachable. Call on his name. Jesus outrageously told his devout Jewish male followers, call Yahweh. Father. Oh, oh no. They would have thought, oh no. That's not good. Call on his name. Jesus has named God the Father for the sake of his people to call out to the one who is a father to his people. Do you call on the name of the Lord? Or when times are hard, do you, you just kind of suck it up and get through it? Maybe you worry. Maybe you strategize. There's, there's something resident in all of our hearts. Something's hard. All right, it's time to plan. I can fix this. Some things aren't fixable. I was thinking of my wife and her sisters and nieces and the rest of the family this week. As they watch their mom and grandma lose the struggle to dementia. I remember this when my mom had it. I know that Sharissa calls out to the Lord often knowing that he can reach into that demented mind of her mother and bring peace and comfort. Calling on the name of the Lord is calling on the one who we believe can push past any boundaries and barriers and do what we so desperately want done. Sharice and the other siblings, the rest of the family, might not be able to get through to grandma's mind. 
but God can. And I believe he does. Calling on his name is to call on him and him alone to do what only he can do. So may we let our desperation for him communicate our gratitude to him. Third exhortation, make known among the nations what he has done. This is both a a witness and a celebration of what God has done that will, I think, fuel our thanksgiving. Often in the Psalms, praise and thanksgiving are interchangeable. You, You just, you see that so much. Israel had a list of the great things that God had done and, and, and they, they rehearsed them through oral tradition. Much of, of the Old Testament was preserved for many, many years, centuries through oral tradition, the telling of the stories, the reminders of what God did. How about us? Do we have a personal list of the great things God has done? We could start with your life. We could start with the fact that, that we're here, that we're breathing. We woke up this morning, opened our eyes. He did it again. He did it again. Move from there to your salvation. New life in Christ, that inheritance we started with. He gave you the gift of his spirit so that you don't have to muddle through on your own. Spirit lives within his people and guides them. And he is, Paul said, our guarantee to the inheritance as God's children. Make a list of what God has done. Celebrate what God has done in your lives and tell others every chance you get. That's what the psalmist is saying. Recount to anybody who'll listen the goodness of God and what he has done. And isn't that really at the heart of what it means to to be a witness? We've talked about that before as a church family. We think often that we, we can't be effective witnesses because we don't know enough. Well, well, somebody asks me a hard question. Well, oh well. We admit that we don't know the answer, and that's a great question, and let me see what I can find. Let me work on that. But up to that point, it's just a matter of telling people who God is and what he has done for us. That is powerful witness. They might not like it, but they can't argue with it. It's your story. And that, I think, is, that's the heart of witness. Make known among the nations what he has done. We could just make known among our family members. Make known among our neighbors. Make known among others in our community. Make known among those in our workplaces, those whom we see on a regular basis. Through our lives and through the things that we say that call attention to who God is. Exhortations 4 and 5, they're, they're, they're kind of linked together. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts... It's kind of interesting language here. Sing to who, does the psalmist say? Him. Sing to God. Sing praise to who? And then he says, and tell of all of his wonderful acts. Now, who's that to? He's just told us to make known among the nations what he has done. 
there's a little bit of a nuance there that could flow right out of the way that the language is structured to that point. Sing praise to God, <clears throat> sing to Him, tell Him about all of His wonderful acts. Tell Him about all of His wonderful acts. Does that strike you as odd? God might be the only person who doesn't mind listening to you sing. And, and he, will, he will never tire. And I, I, I'm, I'm, this is so important that we grasp this. He will never tire of us telling us, telling him how wonderful we think he is. And the reason that's important is because as humans, if we're healthy, we don't work that way. Because you've been there. Someone is showering praise on you and, and initially it's like, Oh, thank you. And, and then it gets a little uncomfortable. And then you begin to think in terms of, if you really knew who I was. And, and so we're, we're not terribly comfortable with, with gushing. God is never uncomfortable with gushing. Because he's got nothing to hide. He's got nothing to be ashamed of. He's got nothing that makes him think, oh, if you only knew. On the contrary, if you only knew, this would be going on and on and on. Think eternity in the presence of God. We'll be gushing for eternity. Yeah. Okay. I need to wrap this up. But let me say something real quickly about that. God never is concerned that we're saying too much. Does God have an ego? Yes, yes, of course he does. Does God have an ego problem? Not at all. And, and because of our humanness, there, there's, there might be just a, a, a nibble of a temptation right there around that, that edge. Does he have an ego problem? No. Only humans have ego problems because we're fallen. Because whether we think too much of ourselves or we think too little of ourselves is essentially... The same problem. We're just we're thinking of ourselves too much. And that's what we do as fallen people. We, we've said it many times. We make life about us. We make relationships about us. We, we want to turn situations into things that point to us. And, and why would we do that? Because there is one whom all of that is really true. The one to whom life needs to be made about that Conversations and relationships need to be pointed to and directed to. God is, is worthy. Okay. Exhortation number six. This will be really quick. The football season is upon us. Some people are saying, praise the Lord. I always have mixed feelings. But here's the deal. Should you be someone who likes to watch professional games... Denver has a team, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, I forgot that for a minute, but yes, silly me. I remember that. Should you be someone who likes to watch professional football, when you think of this exhortation, glory in his holy name, you will think of the right kind of expression when you see the most obnoxious part of any game, the end zone celebration. 
the touchdown dance. Oh, my goodness. But the thing is, the language that the psalmist uses here, glory in his holy name, to glory has the root of boasting and foolishness. Now, the idiots that do it in the NFL don't really deserve that. They're human like the rest of us. But the psalmist is saying, boast about God and be foolish in his presence. Think David in the Old Testament after his victory, stripped off his clothes, danced in the streets, and his wife thought he was an idiot. From a human perspective, a person whose spirit is overflowing with the joy of the Lord may appear at times to be an idiot. Oh well. You know, it's the perspective of our God that really matters. We don't want to call attention to ourselves. We want to call attention to Him. And we want to boast in Him. And who knows, but some Sunday morning, some of us might find our place in the center aisle dancing with our little girls who constantly dance on Sunday mornings. That probably won't be me because that would be a major distraction to our worship. (laughs) However, those kinds of things that maybe... Oh, we just sort of feel them right there, and yet, oh my gosh, what will people think? Maybe, maybe that's a place that we push through and, and we find ourselves celebrating and, and looking a little foolish for the sake of our God. Okay, there's a lot more exhortations. We're not going to do them this morning. But I hope that you'll take the time on your own to, to look at Psalm 105 and to, uh, to consider the rest of those exhortations and and, and see them, as I mentioned earlier, as flowing out of that umbrella exhortation to give thanks. And remember in the Hebrew that oftentimes thanks and praise are interchangeable. Give thanks to God. Give praise to God. Uh, the two are just woven closely together. Okay, Phil, Emma, where are you? Come on up, you two. By the way, great job, Tusum, this morning. I love it. Thank you. Summer can take its toll on, uh, on praise team presence because people are in and out with travel. But uh, blessing to have these two this morning. Fleming Rutledge uh, was one of the first women to be ordained many years ago by the Episcopal Church. I want to conclude with this statement of what she says. The life of thankfulness, biblically speaking, the life of thankfulness is lived in view of the hard things of existence. As the life of thanksgiving deepens, we discover that more mature prayers of thanksgiving are not those offered for the obvious blessings, but those spoken in gratitude for obstacles overcome, for insights gained, for lessons learned, for increased humility, for help received in time of need, for strength to persevere, for opportunities to serve others. And I would add, for the unswerving conviction that we grow 
to believe and live out that God is present in every breath of this life that we take. Every breath, every circumstance worthy of our praise because of who he is. Amen.